What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of animals, science, and writing. First, we'll talk with Kathy Klotz about reed dogs. Our second guest will be Dwayne Merrill, and we'll talk about the importance of teaching science. Our last guest will be author Lara Vaccaro Seeger, and we'll talk about the things that influence her writing. Before I leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have a review of the Mysterious Benedict Society by Trenton Lee Stewart, and we'll hear BYU Radio producer Rob Sanders talk about audiobooks. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. When I work with my college students to research and write papers, one of the things we focus on is how to use evidence. Writing so you effectively use evidence to back up claims and to make convincing points is very important when it comes to the types of writing my students do. But it's also pretty significant for all writers. And in fact, most writing standards for children call for writers to be able to use relevant and sufficient evidence. One of the biggest challenges writers face in using evidence is being able to deal with contrary evidence. In most cases, the writers I work with are able to use evidence as long as it agrees with their position or stance. The problem comes when they have to use evidence that contradicts what they believe. However, being able to write well, especially when we are trying to argue for a position or issue, means that we need to be able to deal with both confirming and contradictory evidence. This kind of writing applies critical thinking skills by encouraging writers to look beyond their own biases to see how others think. I'll admit this is really hard, because as human beings, we often fall prey to confirmation bias, meaning we look for or interpret data in a way that supports our beliefs. Our natural inclination to confirmation bias is one of the things that makes fake news or manipulative advertising possible. So teaching students to look critically at evidence is not only necessary for writing, but also for general literacy that makes us savvy media consumers. While the whole process of how to teach writers to use evidence is something we can't cover here in our brief moments together at Rachel's World, I will say that some simple ways to start are to have children read good examples of persuasive writing. Then a great way to start engaging with writing with evidence is to find real-world examples of ways they can write. Try writing up an argument for why the family should get a new pet, with special focus on the evidence and arguments against such an addition to the family. This is also a great time to connect to the strategies and work children are already doing during their school day, because we know that being able to construct a good evidence-based argument is going to be a really important skill for kids to learn. Rachel's World It's hard to imagine a world without animals, 
What some people don't realize, though, is the potential for animals to really help our kids learn, and maybe in ways that you don't expect. I'm talking with Kathy Klotz, the executive director of the Read Dogs program. Welcome, Kathy. Thanks. I'm pleased to be here. Well, thank you. We've been talking a little bit, Kathy, about just the great wonder that having a therapy animal brings to us because we are so disconnected from nature. We're we're disconnected through technology, through our societies. And what a wonderful thing it is to have bring some of this back in and to bring some of this um, nature just into our urban environments and help us be be a stronger connection to our emotions and all of the all of the things we need to do to to be well-rounded human beings Mm -hmm. um, as part of the world we're in so tell us a little story about one uh, instance where you were working with a therapy animal and you were able to see that wonderful connection that that helps someone be an improved human being because of this connection they had to a therapy animal goodness there are a lot of those um One, I, I'm going to mention a bit of research here um, that was done at UCLA in the cardiac intensive care unit where they measured patients who had barely survived a heart attack. And they measured them in three conditions, all their vital signs, when they were alone, when they were with another person, and when a dog came in to see them. And their vital signs all moved into healthier ranges with an animal than in either of the other conditions, either alone or with another person. It kind of took everybody back. It's like this is serious, measurable stuff that happens when you're with an animal. Um, One of our teams here in Provo, who has a Newfoundland, um, he likes to, when he's at Utah Valley Hospital, he likes to sort of watch the monitors and watch how blood pressure immediately goes down when um, when their, the patients spend a little time with his animal. It's just satisfying to him to see that it's really literally making a difference. So when children come in to read to a dog, they will calm down. Uh, they're able to focus. Their mind's kind of clear. It's easier for them to be present. So... Uh, those kind of things all affect how it works. Um, and then some of the stuff we don't really understand is why does it carry over so well? Why does it carry beyond that setting? Um, why do they remember it so well? Um, so can you we, give us an example of, of how that works, especially with the Reed Dog programs? Because I've seen great statistics and research that shows not only in that instance, but improvement um, in their reading over time and in their grade levels, increasing their grade levels. So there definitely is a, a transfer from this one situation to a greater benefit. So can you share with us a story maybe of uh, a student that had that kind of long-term benefit from participating in this program? Yeah. Um, one 10-year-old came to our opening library program because her grandmother made her come. They took the bus from somewhere way south in the valley, and she didn't really want to, but she she did. And she sat in the corner and wrote us a letter as she was watching her granddaughter at this first week who had resisted coming, and she uh, matched up with several dogs before the time was over. And she loved that so much that she came every Saturday for four years. 
um, and read to the dogs. And so it was kind of it it kind of went from just an, a fun thing at the library to something that was more meaningful to her. And at after that four years, she came in with an essay that she'd written for a class on all the things that she'd learned from reading to dogs, and she asked if she could read that to the dogs at the at one of our sessions. So that was a lovely story of somebody who had really changed over the long term. Um, another little boy in a um, after-school program that was in Atlanta, um, they had painted a big mural on the wall of, and and his dog, his reed dog was included in that. She was up on the wall in this thing, and she was a black lab. She passed away unexpectedly. And this program was an after-school program, um, so it came from a school, but it was occasioned at the library. And they had a memorial service for her there at the library, and they read things together, and they talked about their memories of Cassie, the dog. And when they were finishing up, um, this little boy took a book out of the handler's little traveling library and opened it, and it seemed it had Cassie's paw print right there on the inside cover. And um, he he kept fingering that paw print, and he said to the handler, I'm really going to miss Cassie. Um, if it hadn't have been for her, I would have never made it to the fourth grade. Touching. <laughs> that is so touching. Yeah, so it does carry over. Um, they won awards. They got on the dean's list. They cared more about their learning when they felt that somebody was caring about them and paying attention. That that's really amazing, and I love I love the sense that the animal is the one paying attention, and yeah. the animal is the one that is making that basic connection that allows them to to kind of come out of their shells in many ways. I'm sure you've seen some cases where a child was very shy or reticent, absolutely, and that helped them come out. Can you share a story about a situation like that? Yeah, they come in, you know, really shy. They say, "I can't read very well," and the uh, one in an after-school program at a boys and girls club, a, a little person, the, the team was trying to draw this little girl over. She was a fourth grader, um, and she said, uh, no, she refused, and then she said, I really can't read very well. And she said, that's okay, my dog will just like hearing the sound of your voice. And she started on a picture book, and she said, actually, I really can't read at all, you know. And But she said, well, just you, you just give it a try. And she didn't want help. She had this 32-page picture book, and she turned it page by page and struggled. It took her 40, 45 minutes, and she got to the end of the session and closed the book with just a big smile on her face. And she said, that's the first time in my life I've ever read a whole book. Amazing. So, so we we have a lot of those. That that is amazing to see just how much that opens up the the wonder not only of um for the connection with the dog but also the wonder of reading and just showing them that there's there's something there that's important that they can share with a, another entity on the planet. That's yeah, they're shy at the beginning and then they come back the next week, you know, waving a book and saying, you know, Rover, I know you're going to love this one. So they just really care about how that how that interaction goes. <clears throat> That's really neat. I, I know in, in a lot of the stories you've told us, there really becomes that kind of personal connection with the dog mm-hmm. um, and that one-on-one connection. So why do you think the kids relate to the dogs in that more intimate way uh, than they might to, to a human being? Well, <clears throat> again, they are 
trusting. They feel safe. It's one of our quotes on education that we like, that for all the bad news out there, um, and here's, you know, here's another quote that you may know, Rachel, but not everybody does. In the highest socioeconomic level households, the average child at the time you start school has 14 books. In the lowest socioeconomic households, the average is one book for every 300 children. Yeah, I'm aware of that statistic. So, so we give them new books after they've accomplished certain goals, not used hand-me-down books, brand new ones that they get to select on something they like. It doesn't just get issued to them. And when they've picked out the book that they love, their read dog will potograph it for them and sign it. And so that's something that they just treasure forever. And they just feel good around the dogs. They don't feel judged and criticized. They don't feel, um, you know, as we've said, they not the dog's not going to laugh or tell stories behind their back. Um, on that natural connection that we keep talking about, um, there was a little master's study done at Augsburg College in Minneapolis where the... Um, Jen, the student, um, set up two situations. Uh, Kids could be tutored in reading with her or they could be tutored with her and the dog. And she sent out, you know, uh, permission slips to the parents and they all wrote back enthusiastically. They all wanted to do it. And then when they found out, the parents who found out their child was not going to be in the dog group were like, then they didn't care if they participated or not. So even the parents were more excited about it. (laughs) But this one little boy walked in one day and he read about two sentences and then he slammed his book shut and said, okay, I'm done. And she said, oh, wait a minute, you just got here. Let's try that again. And um, so he opened, read a couple more sentences, closed the book. Now I'm done. And he said, what's going on with you today? And he sighed and he said, well, I can tell you I'd sure rather be reading to a dog than reading to you. <laughs> so, again, it's just some natural attraction. He'd found out from a friend that she got to read to a dog when she was in these sessions. And to him, that was – his was deprivation in the one he had to go to. <laughs> the, that's uh, the different uh, research – Areas that there's like, we want to be in the non-control group. We want to have the dog reading. (laughs) That's amazing. And, you know, we love science. We love validation and proof with everything our animals do in therapy and in the read program. But the truth is that not everything important can be quantified in numbers. Um, Dean Ornish says, uh, you know, we think if we can't measure it, it doesn't even exist. But how do you measure things like love and joy and satisfaction? And so our this is very much not only science but art, and it's certainly a qualitative intervention beyond uh, – beyond just quantity. And we always emphasize to our teams, it doesn't matter how big we get or how many people we visit if that one-on-one visit doesn't change the life of the person we're with. So, And that I think that's a wonderful thing <clears throat> to say about this program because it does. It changes the lives of the people that that impact it. But I'm assuming it also changes the life of the handler and their dog. So can you tell us a little story about maybe how one of your handlers has changed in this process? Well, they just get a lot of satisfaction. Um, I heard a little anecdote earlier this morning in a meeting I was in where two kids who normally did pranks decided to do something nice, and they were so amazed at how much better it made them feel. 
um, that they kind of changed from that. And our handlers all come into this from a different place. Sometimes they are there because they think their dog is great and they want to show off their dog, and they soon learn it's so much bigger than that. Um, And they soon learn it's about more than reading skill. And when they see the difference they can make in the child's um, joy and accomplishment and confidence, it it carries them for a long time. That's wonderful. Could you end with us just a a statement of how this has kind of qualitatively changed you as an individual being involved in this amazing program? Well, I'm one of the luckiest people on the planet because what I get to do is facilitate people who are having life-changing impact every time they get together with their dog and with a person who's going through really tough things, um, whether it's short-term recovery or long-term change. Um, In the education world, if they don't get those basic skills for reading by the time they enter the fourth grade, it's it, it impacts the rest of their life. They never get as much education. They never get as good of a job. And so I get to watch people change all the time for the better and get better when they didn't think they could and... I can't imagine anything better. (laughs) I can't imagine anything better either. And that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Kathy. Thank you. Great to be here. Kathy Klotz is the executive director of the Read Dogs program. Now it's story time with Rebecca Lambert reviewing the Mysterious Benedict Society. Hi, my name is Rebecca Lambert, and I'm an elementary education major at Brigham Young University. And I just read this awesome book. It's called The Mysterious Benedict Society by Trenton Lee Stewart. It was published in 2007, and it is a great book for upper elementary students as well as for junior high and above. It is a fantastic fiction book with deep themes, relatable characters, and an intriguing plot. The four children who are the main characters are very different from each other in their skills, hopes, fears, and personalities. I absolutely adore Rainy, Sticky, Kate, and Constance because they are so different. As a kid, I related to each character for different reasons. With such a diverse cast of characters, the same will likely be true of your children. These characters are also extremely believable. These kids get put into all sorts of crazy situations, and yet they act how any kid would act in a similar situation. That's one of the things I love most about this book. When we read, we want to be completely immersed in the world of the book, and this story does that. The kids are so realistic that you can completely see yourself in their shoes. Many fiction books today feel so similar to other books we may have read that we lose interest. It can be hard for fantasy writers to come up with something new and exciting that draws us into their story. Trenton Lee Stewart did an amazing job of making this plot new and exciting. The children take a series of tests administered by Mr. Benedict, an eccentric genius. Because of their different gifts and talents, they are chosen to complete a secret mission. An evil man, Mr. Curtin, is sending secret messages to people's minds through every form of broadcast sound wave, television, radio, and even cell phones. Mr. Benedict is the only one who has been able to detect these messages, so he sends the four children undercover to the boarding school run by Mr. Curtin. There, he hopes that they will be able to find out more about these messages and find a way to stop them. It's a really interesting and unique plot, and it defies categorization. It's kind of a mixture of fantasy, sci-fi, and contemporary realistic fiction. It has enough fantasy, sci-fi, adventure, and mystery elements to fill you with wonder, but it also feels real enough to the point where you feel like it could happen. These are all amazing reasons to like this book, but for me the best part of this book are the themes that run throughout. 
Every character in this book shows unbelievable bravery at one point or another. The acts of bravery are specific to each individual. The author knows these characters on a deep and personal level, and each character has to face a bit of a trial by fire. The reader learns that bravery isn't something you are born with, it's a choice that you make. At the beginning of the book, Rainy is taking a test, and one of the questions Anna asks, Are you brave? Rainy ponders for a bit and responds with the words, I hope so. I remember sitting on my bed as a kid, reading that question and response, and I distinctly remember thinking, I hope so too. We are all afraid of something. This book teaches us that believing in ourselves and hoping that we are brave can achieve so much. One of the questions on one of the tests the kids take has a picture of a chessboard. The pieces are all in their starting positions except for one piece, the Black Knight, which has been moved up and over from its starting position. The test asks, according to the rules of chess, is this position possible? Rainey thinks about it for a while, then answers yes. Later on in the book, Mr. Benedict asks Rainey why he answered the question the way that he did. Rainey explains that the white player's knight could have moved out, then moved back to its original position on the next turn. Mr. Benedict asks why the chess player would have made such a move. Rainey responds with, perhaps he did it because he doubted himself. This theme of not doubting oneself shows up many times throughout the book. Without giving too much away, there comes a point where Rainey is on the verge of giving up. He is absolutely and fully in a pit of despair. He sends a desperate message to Mr. Benedict looking for hope. And Mr. Benedict responds by simply saying, remember the white knight. He knew that all Rainey needed was the reminder to not doubt himself and the choices he had made up till that point. I love this theme of not doubting yourself. We all have moments where we doubt our own abilities and regret our own actions to the point of despair. In these moments, we need to remember the white knight. We have to move forward, accept ourselves and our choices, and try to improve ourselves. This book is fantastic. The Mysterious Benedict Society by Trenton Lee Stewart is a book that will stay with you and your children for years to come. But don't take my word for it. Go and read it yourself. Some subjects are certainly easier to grasp than others for our children. However, that does vary from child to child. Sometimes the difference between our children excelling in a subject or not depends on having just the right teacher. We're in studio today with Dwayne Merrill, a science professor here at BYU who teaches up-and-coming teachers how to teach. Welcome, Dwayne. Thank you. Dwayne, you have been a teacher, and you currently teach teachers who are going to teach someday. That's a complicated way to say it. But you have such wonderful, vast experience about particularly teaching science and, and how that works and how we can look at that. I, I would hope that we could, in our discussion today, help open people's eyes to, to what good science teaching looks like, at least from your perspective, so we can have some really great conversations in our communities and in our children's lives about what really looks good. So to start out today, tell us a little bit about why do you think it's important that we teach science? What What is it about the scientific disciplines that you think is important for children to learn? I'm probably a little jaded with this question. <laughs> I I think that we teach kids not to be scientists, not teach them to be scientists. I think they naturally love and have a desire to understand about everything. I've always wanted to take my own children and just put balloons in the room that go up instead of down and just see how much it would mess them up for the rest of their life. You know, just think that everything I touch goes to the ceiling instead of goes to the floor. But I think we have to learn to look at the natural curiosity that people have. 
And I don't think it's just children. I think adults have it, if you really are honest. It's, it's, you're curious and you want to know how things work. But to do that, we have to, we have to get away from saying, what are the five steps of the scientific method? You know, what is the definition of Newton's second law? Because I think science is way deeper and it's more enjoyable and it's more exciting when it's a question that you can find out how something does something or how something works or why it behaves this way. That sense of discovery and that sense of depth and problem solving, I think, is something that we do miss in in science. So as a teacher, how would you describe what techniques you might use to teach in that way that will deepen children's experience with science? I think that even as an undergraduate student, you know, in the 1980s, I was lucky enough to have a science professor, the same job I have at Utah State, that he said that we needed to understand that the first thing you have to do is engage a kid. Uh, I, I should talk better than that, engage a student in, in what they need to learn. Have an event or something that happens that makes them just naturally start wondering what's going on. And after you've engaged them, then you can explore that event with them and say, how does this work? And you, know, you take a bottle of water with a lid on it and you poke a hole in it with a red-hot nail and you ask them, is it going to leak or not going to leak? And they pull the nail out and it doesn't leak. And they go, how in the world could it not leak? And now you have something to start working on. You have something to build on. And so you develop a concept of what makes pressure and what things are in equilibrium and why equilibrium trumps pressure in that situation and how those pressures are equaled. And maybe it's a hot air balloon and you design and you build a hot air balloon and you, you find out that, that the, the gases get further apart and in that part they become less dense than air and as they go up into the air they cool and as they cool they condense and as they condense the balloon comes back to the earth and then all of a sudden you realize that's how it's thought that our plates are, are the plates of the earth move around around these convection currents and they're the same sorts of thing there you're watching the ramen noodles boil on your stove or something and they're following the same patterns and so that that explore and develop the concept and then extend the development, I think that's the way that I go about trying to help kids learn to teach students. And I think it's, I think it's kind of universal. I would hope that it would be universal, that we would have this deep engagement. And I, I love that word, engagement. But in, in our education system today, as you well pointed out, there, there are differing levels of engagement. We have some kids that are really engaged and some kids who are not. What would you say to that? How, how would you suggest that we maybe overcome that and see higher levels of engagement from all of our students? First of all, I think that we, if I have made a mistake in my life as a teacher, it's that I don't believe enough in what the student is able to do. I think that they're capable of much more than I ever give them credit to do. Uh, I finished reading a book this last summer called Never Work Harder Than Your Students. And I realized that I was doing a lot of the students' work for them because it was easier for me to do the work for them than it was for them to do it. And so I think about it. I, there was a book called The Speed of Light by Ron Carlson. It's a story of some little boys going from like sixth grade to seventh grade in their summer adventures. And one of the quotes in there is just, it's just the world. We can figure it out. And I think that sometimes we start to think for our kids 
instead of allowing them to think. And so that would be my biggest thing is let's let's let them do what they can do instead of take that opportunity away from them. That to me seems so important because when I read biographies of famous scientists, particularly of the past or even of the present, it really is that sense of self-discovery, right? That they they take the responsibility and they're moving forward with these questions and things. And there there aren't these artificial kind of constructs that I think sometimes we put on science, particularly in in our schooling, where we try to make it this kind of artificial facts and figures and, you know, here's the procedure and if you follow this, then it will work properly types of things. So philosophically, how do you think we can change that as 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 parents helping to advocate for better instruction in our schools, or even as teachers, how, how do we advocate for that more uh, open view of what science should be? Wow. I think that's what science educators try to do. I think we try hard to find ways that really will engage students in our classes I think that sometimes we get so worried about what maybe the the end-of-level test is going to be that we make excuses that we don't have time to let them grow and learn. Uh, I don't think I prescribed that theory. I think in the growth and learnings where they actually start understanding, I think they really do get to the point they can wear their seatbelt at night if you've taught the Newton's first law the correct way. Or they can recognize a convection current when they see it as the thundercloud raises in the afternoon and falls in the evening when the temperature goes down. I think that part of that whole process is that we have to work together, but we have to be better at allowing the strengths the kids have to develop and to learn, not just telling them what they need to learn. Even though in the end, we're going to have to test them on something. And that's somebody the state or whoever it is that decides what that is will always make that decision. But as far as I know, they let me go in my room and I could take my 30 or so kids and I could shut my door and they allowed me as a teacher to try to do that the best way I could. And I would agree with you in interacting with teachers all over the country. I, I know that they really are doing the very best that they can, oftentimes in, in conditions that aren't ideal. I think for me, that would be one of the things I would recommend advocating for is opportunities for more authentic assessments that that allow us to use things like experiments and portfolios and other types of things that aren't the fill in the bubble tests or those types of things that make it more fact and figure oriented. So there are ways we can move forward and, and make these changes as as a teacher yourself and as someone who advocates so vocally for, for science and with such passion and joy, I, I could just hear it in your voice. You love this. How do you want to share that with the rest of the world? What, what if you could do one thing to, to make sure that everybody in the world had the same kind of joy and passion for science, what would you like to do? Wow. I would hope that they all have homes where curiosity is is important and teachers who believe in them. I think that's what I'd hope for. I would hope that when I as a teacher may be a little limited in what I understand, that there's places for me to go as a teacher and grow. 
I would hope that if I was able to go to Eagle View Elementary out on the out in White Rock, Utah, that I could encourage some kids to do something they never thought they'd be able to do by racing some paper drag racers down the hall or flying a hot air balloon that they never knew they'd ever get to make. I'd even be excited when some of them burned up and we all got to see that that's what they all wanted was their paper balloon to burn up. That is such a glorious vision. And I hope too that we can see that. Kids full of curiosity, kids full of opportunities to experience life and to experiment with life in many fundamental ways. Thank you so much for your time today, Dwayne. Thank you. Dwayne Merrill is a professor here at BYU. Next, we'll hear from BYU radio producer Rob Sanders as he talks about his affinity for audiobooks. Let's take a listen. I have never read Harry Potter. I have not read a page of the Harry Potter books. Okay, well, maybe a page, but I have not read an entire Harry Potter book. Well, that's not true. I've read one Harry Potter book, but of the seven, I've only read one Harry Potter book. Now, you say, but how could you miss out? How could you go see the films without reading the books? Well, I found a way to cheat. Two magical words. Cliff Notes. No. Jim Dale. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. J.K. Rowling. One. Now, obviously, that's not Jim Dale. That's some text-to-speech engine pretending to be Jim Dale because for legal reasons I can't actually play you Jim Dale's voice, but you get the drift. And even if I could legally play you a clip from Jim Dale's narration of the Harry Potter series, which, by the way, is fantastic... His character voices sound better than the actors who play the actual characters in the Warner Brothers films. I couldn't play you that fantastic narration because I bought them all on cassette. It was back 15 years ago and my car had a cassette deck, so that's what I bought. But it entered me into a magical fantasy world that I normally wouldn't have cared about. I'm not really a fantasy guy. But almost as if I were a child and somebody were reading the story to me, well, then I got sucked right into it. Now I can see it. I'm probably in the minority here. There's a never-ending list of people out there, maybe you, who dream of one of those rainy days where you can sit by the fireplace, you know, if you have one, and curl up on a nice, comfortable, easy chair, assuming you have one, and read an interesting book, if you can find one. But that's not me. I'm busy. I got places to be. I like sunshiny days. I got things to do. Perhaps if you're in the minority like I am, you find yourself flipping open a book, wanting to read it so badly. It could be the new Harry Potter sequel, compelling story, and I find my eyes line by line, line by line, working their way to the bottom of the page. And soon I realize I didn't actually comprehend anything on the page because I got distracted thinking about other things. Nothing on this page is moving. Yawn. I'd just gone through the mechanics of reading, but hadn't actually read anything. But with an audiobook, I can multitask. I made it through six Harry Potter books, eating frozen waffles and drawing. Or eating frozen waffles and changing the brakes on a car. Or eating frozen waffles and forgetting to take a boombox out of the back of the car on a hot summer day. Oh, man. 
But the magical Harry Potter-filled summer of 2002 came to an end. Fall rolled in. I was taking AP English, and they assigned all kinds of horrible books you'd never actually want to read unless somebody made you. Nathaniel Hawthorne. And it was written when? 1850. Thank heavens for those audiobooks in the library. I never would have graduated. I mean, the Scarlet Letter. Who wants to read that for fun? But now I know it's not cool to yell, Boo! In the face of somebody who's, you know, just made a few bad life choices. Boo is a reference to Hester having to wear the Scarlet Letter A on her clothes. And sometimes the people who are booing the loudest are the ones who caused the problem in the first place. Like Arthur Dimsdale, who on paper would have said, I, your pastor, whom you so reverence and trust, utterly a pollution and a lie. My eyes would have just sailed right past that quote. But to hear it out loud, to hear, I, Arthur Dimsdale, your pastor, whom you reverence and trust, am utterly a pollution and a lie. You hear it in your ear. The quote's meaningful. The book's exciting. Or maybe it's just me. There's visual learners, reading and writing learners, kinesthetic learners, and auditory learners. Maybe we ear people just like our audiobooks a little bit more. The Phoenix Conspiracy by Richard L. Sanders. Book one. So when my brother hit it big, well, I didn't really hit it big. He hit it medium, selling his sci-fi novel on Amazon. And I found myself I didn't read it. I mean, come on, my brother just hit it medium on Amazon. And I couldn't bring myself to sit down and read his book. Because the pages don't move, and they're slow, and they're boring. And then the audiobook came out, and I was glued to a story. Her narrow eyes shot him a hateful glare. She'd been a faithful friend these past several years, and deceived... They say blood's thicker than water, but it's not thicker than paper. Thanks, audiobooks, for helping me graduate high school, college, and preserve my family relationships. Picture books are important windows into the world for children. The inspiration for them can come from anywhere. We had Jessica Verzello of the World's Awaiting Team talk to Laura Vaccaro Seeger, an author and illustrator of children's books. Let's listen in. We're back today with Laura Vaccaro Seeger. Laura, thank you again for speaking with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. I had so much fun last time. Um, I loved our discussion on, on your process as an author and, uh, and illustrator in creating each of your works. And I'm curious to hear about your journey and, and how you came upon this profession and just your, okay. I guess, your influences in your life. Basically, I have kind of always been an artist. I think uh, probably a lot of a lot of illustrators mm-hmm. in this business might tell you that um, you know we just I've just been drawing and painting all my life and and I went and um, got my degree in fine art and graphic design and when I graduated I I kind of um, began working in the television business really quickly interesting and um, so set off on a career in in television and 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 my job for about nine years or so uh, at NBC television in New York City was to create their animated show openings for shows like Saturday Night Live and David Letterman and the Today Show and whatever shows they they have mm-hmm. and also some of their specials that they, they put on. So um, And it was so much fun and I loved it and it was just fantastic. But Ever since I was a kid, I had been collecting in my journals ideas for children's books and sketches 
and you know writings and drawings and all kinds of stuff and I had even made a few children's books when I was you know in elementary school and junior high middle school and high school and I even saved them and so it was just this kind of thing that was there and I never really thought about Mm -hmm. pursuing it per se and also I really loved my career in television but then I had kids and I couldn't really work the you know the 90 hours 80 mm-hmm. hour weeks anymore and and you know I just I just really felt like I I need I wanted to be home more with the kids and mm-hmm. so I my husband had uh who's also in the television business had set up a home studio for me so I was doing you know like 3D animation from this home studio which in and of itself is kind of awesome like my mm-hmm. husband is so smart like he was able to put this all together and I was creating stuff that looked even better than the you know, multi-million-dollar um, studios at NBC that I had been in, but uh, I was doing that for a while for ABC mostly, and then, and then one day I just said to him, you know, I've always wanted to make children's books, picture books. I'll probably never, you know, get published. I don't know anything <laughs> about the business, but at least we'll have stuff for our kids and maybe our grandkids someday. And and he was totally supportive about it, and. Um, so then I then I set out to see how do I go about this and I, frankly I I I did everything wrong. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> the first thing I did was I called up Dick Jackson who is a uh, at the time he was president of DK Publishing and um I just didn't I didn't know you don't call the president mm-hmm. of a major publisher up like that. I just didn't even realize. So I called him up and um and the the lovely woman who answered, whose name I don't think I ever knew, um, <laughs> told me that he doesn't work out of the New York offices. He works out of California. So he, um, so she gave me, somehow she gave me his number. And the next morning, first thing in the morning, I called him up. And just as he answered the phone, I realized, oh, no, it's 6 o'clock in the morning oh, in California. No. <laughs> oh, no. He sounds tired. Oh, no, do I have his home number? <laughs> and so instead of saying hello, I just began the whole thing by apologizing profusely. <laughs> and he's like, who are you? <laughs> and so, you know, I talked to him for a while. I told him I wanted to make, you know, picture books. And and he you know, he kind of said something like, yeah, you and the rest of the world. Right. And I was like, oh, this isn't going well. And then... um and then he's so, so lovely, and he said, you know, send me what you have and call me back in a couple of weeks, and, if I, and I'll tell you what I think of what you're sending me. So I did. I sent him, like, six, you know, one-of-a-kind you know, mm-hmm. books. Like, they weren't book books yet. They were just all the art. And I didn't know anything about 32 pages. Right. I really was, I really, was a, really bad. Like, I didn't do any of my homework <laughs> like I should have. And... um and so I sent them to him, and then a couple of weeks later, I called him back, and I did it again. I woke him up again, oh, and no. I just like started the conversation by saying, "Oh no, I woke you up again. I'm so sorry." <laughs> well, he knew who you were. Yeah, and he, and he said, uh, "You know," he said, "No, it's okay. I want you to go see Neil Porter in New York City," and um, that was that was it. That was like I'm just it was dumb dumb luck. That you was know? the beautiful beginning. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. It, it's so much fun how your books are not only beautiful works, but they're also memories and are so connected with, with your life and your experiences. Oh, for sure. 
after hearing your story, I am just interested in if if you have any tips for upcoming um, writers or illustrators who want to launch into this business but may not have the same lucky connections that you you had. Yeah, um, I would say like the best advice would be to to um, go to the library or the or or a bookstore and just make sure it's a currently um, published book and find find books like the one the one that you've written or the illustrated you know find similar mm-hmm. books because editors have taste you know it's, right. it's, they they have certain books that they like and the other other one editor might like it another one might not and see who's publishing um, books like like the ones you write or illustrate and um and then kind of target those editors and publishers and um and oftentimes you know they you can only submit through agents so mm-hmm. um so that's a little bit more of a kind of monkey wrench in it but the other thing that i would recommend is joining um SCBWI and that is such a wonderful organization they have um, conferences and stuff where editors come and they look at new works by writers and illustrators, and uh, so many people have gotten discovered there. And it, even if you don't get discovered there, you learn so much. And so that's a really amazing thing to do. And then the, the other thing is there's a book, I think it's called Children's Writers and Illustrators Market, and there's a new edition every year, and in it are listed all the editors and art directors and publishers and agents, I think agents, and, um, and their, their contact information and, and, you know, and also their chapters on advice on how to get into the business and stuff. So I think all those three things together would kind of give people, I think, I definitely advise, you know, <laughs> learning about what, don't, don't do what I did, I think. You don't know, call it six about, in the morning. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. I don't think, I don't think that would go over too well in general. I was super lucky about that. The dick was so nice to me. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, you know, just kind of learning what, what goes into making, making a book, you know, and well, thank you. That is wonderful advice. You know, do your research and become involved and be knowledgeable about what's going on. And oh, that's wonderful, Laura. I just have um, our last question for today. How how do you interact with the readers of your books? Do you have opportunities to talk to children and, and do presentations or go to schools? I'm just curious. I do. Uh, I do. I'm. I mostly speak at conferences like um, like ALA and and IRA and all all those. But um, and I feel that those are really good because I'm speaking to teachers and librarians and and thereby kind of reaching lots lots and lots of kids. Mm-hmm. But um, I will meet. I will often meet people at those conferences. Um, who then invite me to their schools, and and I, I you know, I almost I always try to say yes if I've met a librarian or a teacher and we've sort of connected, and so I do, you know, quite a, quite a handful of times a year go to different schools around the country, and um, just in the last five months alone, I've been to Houston and obviously the American schools in in China and a, a bunch of other places. And yeah, and I think that's super important to do, at least to some extent, because you are, you know, you're basically seeing really honest reactions from kids, even if they're familiar with the books, which I guess they usually are. But, 
but you still, I mean, kids just don't, they, they, you know, they're not going to say they like something that they don't like usually, right. I think. And, um, and in fact, I had such an amazing, um, just, just about a month and a half ago at a school in New York, um, where I showed the kids a book that's coming out next year, and I was really nervous because it's a very, it's extremely emotional book, mm-hmm. and um, I was just super scared about showing it. And I, and this book I only showed to a group of about eight or ten fifth fifth graders, and when I was showing it to them, they started crying, and I got scared and upset. <laughs> I was like, oh no! And then when I was done. I was just like, I'm so sorry, you guys. I didn't mean to make you sad. And they, were, and one of the children said to me, you didn't make us sad, you moved us. And I just thought, oh. there it is. There's the answer to your question right there. Like that kind of thing is just, I don't even know how to describe how, you know, what, how important that is for an author. So, And how yeah. gratifying that must feel to you. To have that, yeah. those experiences and, and those memories and inter- interactions. Yeah, it is really, really gratifying and really important, too. Well, Laura, thank you so much for talking with us today. It has been an immense pleasure, and you are just a gem. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's been a pleasure for me, too, 100%. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. That was Jessica talking with Laura Vaccaro Seeger, an author and illustrator of children's books, about her process in writing and illustrating. Now, join me around the librarian's table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life. Today, I'm talking with Janice Bunker, Janet Bradford, and Myrna Layton about the importance of practicing when learning a musical instrument. We're in studio today with three of my very favorite librarians in the whole wide world, and particularly three of my very favorite music librarians. So we're going to chat about music and the role of music in our lives. So our, our, my main question that we want to start with is, why, why is it important to play an instrument? Why do you think we need to kind of help our kids practice or, I guess, say force our kids to practice? Why would it be important to have an instrument? So Janice, you, I know you have a lot to say on this subject, so dive in. Let, let's hear. <laughs> okay. So uh, I have expertise in this. Obviously, I'm a musician. I've played instruments, but I've also been a teacher. I taught piano lessons for years and years. And so from both sides of the equation, this is what I have learned. Number one, music can teach your kids a lot of things that they don't get anywhere else. Number one, discipline. You have to practice every day. And it doesn't matter. I mean, you can't just save it all up and practice on Friday for four hours. That's not going to cut it. Some people do, though. Some people do, (laughs) but it's really not effective. They've proven that the most effective practicing is a little bit every day. Doesn't take a lot of time. It's just a little bit every day. So discipline is the one thing. The second thing is um, it actually helps kids' brains and motor skills. Um, I know for a fact, in fact, there was a BYU student who as a child was diagnosed with a strange little hand disease that his hands, the muscles were atrophying and curling in. And so for part of his therapy, he was required to take piano lessons because he had to stretch his hands out 
and make his hands move while he was playing the piano. And basically, that was his therapy. He's really great pianist now, as a side note. But that was one of the therapies. I had a student of mine who had a real problem with small motor skills. And I didn't know at the time that I was doing that. But a couple of years in, my friend shared with me that the reason they kept having him take piano lessons was because it was so good for him to have the the playing for the small motor skills. Um, it also helps their brains. They have to think about things in a different way to do music. That's my two cents. I love it. 25 I love cents. It. Any, anything else to add, Janet, Myrna? Um, practicing is a really solitary thing. And that's, I think that's one of the challenges with having your child learn the piano or some other instrument. I think that's okay that they are in a solitary mode for a minute. And then it turns into a social event because as you go to your lessons, as you start learning how to play, then you're able to use that talent. How's the best way to say this? To socialize. And it's it's a means of building relationships with other people who are also in music. That's such a really great point. And I think you need we need to kind of underscore that, that, you know, being in a band or being in a choir or being in an orchestra or whatever that looks like really does become a very social activity. I look at myself and my nephews who played in band and it the core friends we have because of that activity last even to today. And I that's really that's a really great thing, particularly for high school. Yeah. And that's how I met my husband. There you go. So <laughs> it can lead to romance too. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, what do you think, Marilyn, well, along was, those lines? Yeah. That was the the thing that I was thinking of was the the social aspect because um Janice covered a lot of the other points so well. But I was just thinking of, you know, children who move. Like if if you relocate and, and you need to make friends, if you're a band geek, you will find the other band geeks where you go. And um but it's just like a ready made group of friends who who share common experiences, people who share your interests that that so when children move, I think that being musical is is one way that can really help them to find their niche. Yeah. Well, and I'm going to grossly overgeneralize this, but I I have found that in in band and orchestra communities, there's less bullying, there's less kind of tensions as far as friends go, partially because I think of those skills that Janice was talking about, right, where you have to learn to work together and you have to learn to work together in a very unique way. And so I I've seen band communities like that be very much more open and honest and accepting and less bullying and less, you know, teasing and that kind of thing than you would in other kinds of communities. And I, I, again, I'm generalizing here, but I think it's true because you are part of the reason you're together is to learn those skills, right? Just like you said. Well, and I think another point is it's a completely different experience to be in a group performing, making music. It's, it's far and away completely different experience when you're in the moment and you're all playing together and it sounds cool and the audience loves and it's just a really great feeling to be in the moment perform I mean we could talk about performing too because you know people have performance anxiety and Mm -hmm. but if you're performing as a group it tends to be less of a performance anxiety than if you are the solo person on the stage 
And you learn that it's okay to make a mistake. I mean, oh, like I play, I, I play in the gamelan at BYU. And, you know, we performed on Saturday night. And, you know, oh, I made a mistake. And he made a mistake. And she made a mistake. I mean, I can hear them because I know what they are. But we're all not being perfect. But yet the overall sound is good. Those individual mistakes don't matter because um, we're all playing well, and that, again, is another good habit to get into, how to make a mistake, but then move forward, right? To not let that mistake say, oh, no, I made a mistake. I'm totally going to crash. And so burn. true. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, that, again, another behavior. Janet, any last thoughts you want to add? I just keep thinking about um, the philosophy that it takes 10,000 years. 10,000. It takes 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. And that's a lot of hours. I mean, when you think about it, but as you're doing all these activities, that's contributing to an expertise that is a, it's a fun way to learn something and become better as you do make mistakes, but you move on. Perfect. Thank you, ladies. Hopefully now all kids out there will be signed up for Unisic lessons starting <laughs> tomorrow, I hope. Is it right, right now? Right now. Go out. Do it right now. Well, it does. I mean, it brings so many benefits to your life and I... I can testify to that, and I know all three of you do the same. Music is an important part of our lives. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank Janice, Janet, and Myrna for joining me around the librarian's table. It's been a great show today. First, we spoke with Kathy Klotz about the impact of the Read Dogs program. Then, we spoke with Professor Dwayne Merrill about teaching science. Our last guest was author Laura Vaccaro Seeger, and she discussed her writing influences. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us. Mm-hmm.